This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan, and joining me today is science journalist and author, the funny, the affable, the brilliant Mary Roach, who is here to talk to me about the curious science of war. Before we start, if I could get you to very quickly just introduce yourself and what you do. Hello, my name is and the like. Sure. Hello, my name is Mary Roach, and I write popular science books that typically have one syllable to the title, like grunt and stiff and spook and bonk. (laughs) Mary, am I right in thinking that going to space and going to war are probably the two most traumatic things you can subject your body to? I would say that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah, I mean, they're both extreme and they're both physically things that the human body doesn't expect to encounter. So, yeah, yeah, I I think that's, I mean, they're probably extreme athletic events perhaps also fall into that category. But, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like that, yeah. And it's interesting because when I bought Grunt and I was reading the back of the book, it occurred to me that I've read a lot about the science of going to space. All of the documentaries I've seen about the Apollo missions always focus on this idea of keeping humanity safe and secure while they're in the vacuum of space. But I've read so little about the science and technology of sending, of sending us out to war within our own, within our own planet. And that's quite fascinating. Is it, is it primarily because we're secretive about that sort of technology? Um, I think it's because when people think about war, they, they tend to just focus on the high drama of combat and the, 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 the things that go on behind the scenes, the science of extreme heat or sleep deprivation, or how do you keep food, how do you dehydrate food so people can carry it with them and it won't spoil. That kind of thing just falls through the cracks, I think. I don't I don't think that there's, I think the secretiveness is more in the realm of strategy and weaponry and bombs and that kind of thing. The science of keeping people alive and dealing with these extreme physical situations, it just, it just doesn't get that attention because it can't compete with you know, the drama of combat and life and death and man versus man and all of that. So what inspired the book? At which point did you decide? I mean, you've written about the curious science of practically everything weird that the human body does. At which point did you go, I need to look into war? Um, oddly, I was reporting a story in India on Bhutjalokia. And in the process of reporting that, somebody told me, oh, this Pepper, the military, the Indian military, weaponized it. They made an, a, a bomb, essentially, a non-lethal weapon, nothing heavy artillery, just a thing that would go off, and it kind of like a pepper spray. It would clear a room or a compound. It would disperse people. And I thought, well, I need to report on that. So I went over to this lab. The Indian military has a few science labs. And I went over there, and while I was there, they were working on a leech repellent, which I found fascinating. You know, something for troops to put on if they're, you know, making their way through a river or it's rainy season and they're being plagued by leeches. So so the military is like, we need a leech repellent. This is what we're going to do. And I thought, wow, military science, that's kind of a weird world that nobody ever steps into. 
That's like, dun, 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 call Mary Rose. <laughs> Fantastic. And when it comes to studying about the science of war, how, how much accessibility did you have, especially with the American military? Actually, the Indian military was a lot trickier. I mean, I managed to get into that one lab, but when I tried to follow up and come back and report on the, the leech repellent project, I got nowhere. Uh, that was there were all just with a lot of paperwork involved and a lot of permissions and and people didn't return emails and I gave up pretty quickly. Um, the U.S., however, has a pretty efficient public affairs network and that includes at the Pentagon actually. There's a public affairs office that deals with books and you can send a description of what you're planning to do and they will give you kind of a letter of support. They won't, they can't make anybody talk to you and they can't really make things happen, but they can sort of take away people's hesitation. You know, that, that, that fear of like, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for my superior. If I talk to this woman, or if I say, yeah, you can come to the lab. So this was a, a, a way for people to figure, okay, if the Pentagon is okay with her, then we'll be okay. So that was helpful. And also just people were, because I think it's, a, again, it's a story that doesn't get told very often. And it's a, it's a good story to tell. It's about trying to make the god-awful, difficult, arduous experience of combat a little more bearable. So I, I, I think they were happy to tell that story. I expected to have a lot more difficulty with access than I did. That's very interesting, you know, because when I was reading your book and, and, and I was thinking about access, in telling a story like the one you just told, Militaries all across the world, whether it be in the UK, the US, even here in Malaysia, I guess part of their propaganda machine is to make war look less dangerous, because that's the only way they're going to recruit people. And I'm assuming they would be happy to have you tell the story, whether it's about shark repellent or the kind of clothing soldiers wear to keep them safe. It seems that it goes a long way to allay fears that the public might have when sending their children off to fight a war. I never really thought about it that way. I guess I tend to think of them as avoiding the stuff that makes them look bad, but not so much promoting something that might make things seem safer. That's an interesting take, yeah. I suppose war has been a man's game for the longest time. And women in active service relatively a new phenomenon in the hundreds and hundreds of years. What does the science of war look like for women in the service? Well, one of the things, I mean, I didn't cover much of that in the book because it is very new. Um, but one of the things that they're grappling with, that the military in the, in the U.S. anyway, is um, do we change the game? Do we change, first of all, the fitness standards? Do we change them in some way? Do we make it a little easier for women to get in? And, you know, the, the consensus has been, no, they need to step up to the same standards that, that we have for the men. Um, there's also been some discussion about, you know, the, the, the kind of shock treatment that you go through, like boot camp, the, the, the classic kind of yelling, badgering, humiliating drill sergeant. The stuff that, I see on TV. Yeah, the stuff that you see on TV, which is, you know, in some cases exaggerated. I mean, I think there, but it still exists and it's sort of a rite of passage and it's, there's reasons that they do it. But there is a, a sense of a, a question of, you know, is that going to come across as abusive or harassment or 
you know, is this something that we're going to need to tone down because it's not, it's just not a men's world anymore. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and is it appropriate to treat women for male drill sergeants to treat women this way? You know, I, and I, I that's something I, I'm actually going to be adding a chapter to the paperback edition of the book. And that's uh, one of the things I'm thinking about reporting on. Uh, and, and I don't have the answer yet, but that's something that they've been thinking about. What's going to change? Or should we just expect, you know, here's the rules. And if you want to play the game, you follow these rules too. So the science of space has had a tangible impact, I suppose, on our everyday lives from Tang to Velcro. Uh, but what about the science of war? What did you discover about the kind of things the U.S. military had been working on and how it's impacted our everyday lives? I think that the area where the military really has contributed a tremendous amount is um, emergency trauma care. In other words, it's stopping bleeding. You know, you, you, if you get a major bleed and, and an artery is cut, uh, you, you have a couple of minutes before you bleed out and die. So the military's got quite good at training medics to stop bleeding very effectively. Also, if somebody's shot through the lung, you know, lung, you, you very quickly develop a situation where you have a collapsed lung. There's not necessarily simple, but, you know, once you learn it, you know, you can do it. It's called a needle decompression. So emergency trauma care has benefited a great deal from research that's gone on in the military in terms of combat casualty care. And also things um, like uh, not just the wounds of war, but earlier wars, you would lose, the military would lose far more people to infectious diseases and dysentery and diarrhea from food poisoning because you have these massive field camps and there's no refrigeration of food and there's an open pit latrine. So you've got flies landing on the crap and then they're transferring pathogens on their feet, just directly landing into the food, which is sitting out in the sun. It's not refrigerated. The bacteria are multiplying. And now hundreds of men are coming down with typhoid fever or dysentery and and dying. And, you know, you're talking about four to seven times as many people dying from disease than from bullets or bombs. The Navy in particular has done some amazing work with treating somebody's dehydrated from dysentery you know, there was, a, there was a Navy captain who figured out, well, if we add glucose to the rehydration fluids, now you can drink them rather than making your way to a clinic and getting an IV. And that simple development, that discovery is probably one of the biggest medical advancements in terms of lives saved in developing nations. Because you still, millions of children die from dehydration from diarrhea every year because they were losing so many troops to diarrhea and dysentery. That was you know, that, that's a, you know, it's the kind of thing you don't really, it doesn't sound all that spectacular, but it was a fairly impressive discovery. Um, you know, Walter Reed is the guy who figured out, you know, how, uh, how are these like flies? What, you know, how is this, what's the vector here? He's the one who figured out, aha, they're actually just picking it up on their feet and inoculating the food. You know, and that's how this disease is being spread. And then there were all these like, you know, sanitation units and fly control units, and there were death quotas for flies in World War II. I mean, that the fly became the enemy. There's these posters, these great posters from World War II, like, this is the enemy, and it shows this big fly being bayoneted by a soldier, you know, just the, and, and because that's, that's who was doing the most killing, was those little filth flies. And the inspiration for many a science fiction film, this giant fly is the enemy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the other things that 
I was kind of debating was this idea of trying to make the soldier more comfortable in war. Is that something that the military even thinks about? Because you're sending someone off to the worst possible situation. And sure, you're trying to protect them from disease and extreme weather and just getting killed. But is there any attention being paid to keeping them comfortable? Um, it's not a priority. Keeping somebody comfortable, um, it's kind of a fine line between keeping them alive and keeping them comfortable. I mean, something like an air-conditioned armored personnel carrier. Um, okay, air conditioning is great. Uh, but in, initially, in some of these vehicles, the newer ones, they didn't put it in because they're very weight conscious. There's only, you know, you want to use the weight allotment that you have on keeping the thing safe and impervious to blast. So they didn't put an AC unit in there. Then they realized, you know what, it's getting to like 140 degrees. I mean, it's like <laughs> lethal in here. So they put an AC not to keep them comfortable, but to keep them alive. So I think it's kind of um, it may there there are things that look like they may have been done for the sake of comfort, but mm, probably just because it was actually not just uncomfortable but lethal. I asked the question because I was approaching it from that morale point of view: whether a happy soldier is more likely to do his or her best, or whether you need to keep them in that high pressure situation at all times for them to perform. There's also an awareness of. We're spending taxpayer dollars and comfort is not. So I think, you you know, I think it, it's probably a balance of wanting to keep morale intact, but not wanting to go so far as to seem like you're being extravagant. The food is going to necessarily, the food, it's going to suck because it's highly processed. It's irradiated. It's got, you know, it's, it's, it's got a shelf life of three years. So it's not going to be delicious. But I have to say, you know, I've had food on a North African base that was fresh fruit. There was a salad bar. I mean, it was, it was good eating. You know, so, so it's not it's not all deprivation. And I think that you know, when soldiers are on a large base and you can provide stuff, I think they, they try to do that. There always seems to be an inordinate amount of money and science dedicated to the male penis. So what happens when your penis gets blown off? <laughs> well, funny, you should ask. One of two things, and this is something that, that we're seeing more of for two reasons. There are bigger explosives. IEDs have gotten bigger. So, you know, the old landmines, you tended to be, you know, around the knee or below would be amputated. But you know, these explosives, these IEDs are big enough that there's injuries up in the pelvic region. And also the medical care has gotten better and faster. So people are surviving with these injuries. You can rebuild a penis. Uh, and interestingly, some of that surgical work has grown out of the transgender surgical world. They've, those guys are very good at building penises where penises don't exist. So, so there are some, I mean, it's a different, it's a different, certainly a different situation um, and a different approach, but there are some of the some of the techniques they've picked up from there. So you can you you want to start with a piece of skin that is hairless because no one wants a hairy penis. <laughs> and for the urethra, if you need to repair a urethra, you take tissue from the inside of the cheek because it's not only hairless, it's also 
used to moisture, so it doesn't degrade in moisture like uh, some like exterior skin can do. Uh, so you know, that that's an interesting development. Uh, and, and you don't want hair in a, in, in a urethra either because minerals can kind of build up on the hair and then you get blockages or stones breaking off. So um, urethra works better. You can't, the problem, the difficult part is erectile tissue. There is some erectile tissue in the human nose, but it's a different, you know, it's not, it's not blood that's erecting it. It's fluids in the nose. Nobody's tried transplanting erectile tissue from the nose to the penis. I, I put that out there to suggest that they try that. Nobody's banking noses. Uh, so there's, um, that would be something that I, who knows if it would work. Anyway, so you have to put an implant in. For, to get an erection, they have implants which are used for extreme erectile dysfunction. You know these two rods that are you can be inf- you can inflate them with saline. There's a little reservoir that's put in the scrotum, and you can kind of pump that in. So there's the rebuilding option. And now, as of a couple months ago, there's also the transplant option, and that is the something I reported on. We're doing a, some cadaver work, figuring out what arteries and veins and nerves they would need to be the most important to reattach that was unbelievably fascinating uh, and the first transplant happened i think it was the uh, last week of may or first week of june not on a veteran the people that i was visiting at johns hopkins were their first patient will be a veteran but they haven't done it yet the transplant that was done a couple months ago was on a cancer patient and as far as I know, that that went well. I haven't spoken to them. I don't have any follow up. But anyway, those are the you can rebuild or you can transplant. Those are your those are your options. And finally, this is something which made sense the more I read about it. But diarrhea. Yeah, I had no idea diarrhea was such a killer. Uh, yeah. Well, historically, yeah. Well, I think we you know we talked a little bit about that earlier. You know, historically in conflicts where you had a lot of food poisoning, that diarrhea and dehydration from diarrhea were were um, far more lethal to troops than bullets and bombs. And and these days, uh, if you're on a base, the food is very safe. If you get food poisoning, it's because you left the base and you went into town and you were eating on the economy. The people who get it now these days, it, the, the rates are highest in special operations teams who are doing the very high risk critical missions like take out Osama bin Laden, go clear this compound, go assassinate somebody, whatever whatever those guys do. They're out in villages, eating with the locals, getting information, trying to blend in. So they're eating unrefrigerated food and untreated water fairly regularly, and they get pretty bad diarrhea very often. And and if that hits you when you're doing your mission, you just keep going. It's very unpleasant. So the, the Navy has been testing some drugs that you could just do one dose and it would be an effective treatment very much faster than a two or three day regimen so um yeah that's that, that's why it's a priority that's why the navy has a diarrhea guy and also something incredibly useful if you're ever visiting india which is great yes <laughs> i'm looking forward to that drug being available on the market 
That was science journalist and author Mary Roach. You can find her book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, at all good bookstores. Also, her other books, Packing for Mars, which is about outer space, Gulp, which is about digestion, Spook, which is about ghosts, and of course, Bonk, which is about sex. They're all great reads. Go check them out. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.